Who builds the bridges of the future and who owns the bricks that make them? When we imagine the future, the question of infrastructure becomes all important. We're not only talking about dams and tunnels and roads here, but schools and hospitals and even laws and financial institutions. I'm Eleanor Penny, and on this week's Navara FM, I talked to academic and author Lale Khalili about how struggles over infrastructure have made the modern world. Lale is a professor of international politics, and her works include the books Heroes and Martyrs of Palestine, Time in the Shadows about confinement and counterinsurgencies, and her most recent title, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. She's also written about apocalyptic infrastructures for Noema magazine, unpicking the physical and legal structures that are wreaking untold global havoc from the mines in Goa to the train lines of East Palestine, Ohio. We talked about sabotaging oil pipelines, deep diving to undersea telecom wires, resource wars, reparations, striking nurses, and what kinds of democracy we need for a livable future. Lali, thank you so much for being here. It's really exciting to be here and to be speaking to you guys. So what brought you to a sort of shipping and sort of infrastructure in general, the Gulf specifically as an area of study? I'd love to hear a little bit about your in-person research because I know you've, you've spent time on ships. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of a long story, actually. Uh, I was finishing a book about counterinsurgency. And in the process of finishing that book, I mean, it was an incredibly um, depressing book to research because I was talking to people who had been confined in uh, US detention camps in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was talking to former Guantanamo detainees. I was also speaking to some of the people who had been involved in interrogations and who were writing me a culprits. They were the only ones who were willing to um, talk to me about these kinds of things. And in the process of this, I was also talking to some JAGs, uh, Judge Advocate Generals, American military lawyers, who actually are some of the unspoken heroes of that counterinsurgency stuff. And one of those JAGs said to me, journalists and academics, what you're interested in when you're talking about the war is the bleeding edge of it. You, what you want to hear is the stories of blood and gore and torture and whatever. What you need to really look at is where the money goes uh, and, and how the back end works. And that always stuck with me. So how does the back end work? You know, how does fuel get to uh, the basis where the U.S. is running this? How, do, how is the electricity kept, um, kept on? How are soldiers transported to these places? Um, around the same time, a friend who works for um, or worked for at the time for International Transport Workers Federation in their research division said to me that it would probably be a nice thing to sort of research uh, the Gulf because obviously uh, Dubai's Jabal Ali is um, often on the top 10 list of big container ports in the world. And it's the only one that is not in East or Southeast Asia. So it's the only one that is actually appears on the list, despite the fact that it is not in the hub of production, um, as China has been for a long time. And so uh, they, they were really interested in some research in that. And so I, that, that combination suddenly seemed really relevant. How did, you know, soldiers and fuel get to Iraq? Obviously, ships were involved. What is the role of Dubai? I did a little bit of digging, and it then became clear that Dubai and Jabal Ali specifically had been a kind of a hub for transportation of war material to both Afghanistan and to Iraq. And so that was, the, that, that was what got me interested in this. Um, I was also looking for something that wasn't quite as 
dark um, uh, as speaking to people who had been subjected to uh, horrendous uh, treatment. Um, and, and it seemed to me that going and researching ports, uh, both historically and in the present, would be the thing to do. So I started doing that. And then around the same time, I read a newspaper account of somebody who had traveled on a container ship. It was in the FT. And at the bottom of that, they had listed the name of a freight um, travel agent. And I was like, ooh, freight travel agent? I immediately wrote to them. Unfortunately, they've gone out of business at this point. And also because of COVID, most um, shipping companies no longer take on passengers. But at the time, you could get on a freighter. And so I booked a trip and I went from Malta to Jabal Ali the first time. And it was a very quick trip. It was only about two and a half weeks. And then a year and a half later, uh, the complexion of world trade had changed. And so I decided to uh, go again and see what it was like with uh, trade slowing down. And so I went again. And this time it was a very slow trip. It took three and a half weeks. Um, well, it usually only takes two. And so it uh, it was a slow trip from, again, Malta to Jabal Ali. Around the same time, I was also going to archives. I was going to the ports. I was visiting places where they would let me in. They wouldn't let me into Jabal Ali port from the land. So arriving from the sea was one way of seeing how it functioned internally. And, you know, and I traveled loads of other places, Oman's ports, Kuwait's ports. Um, Qatar uh, was pretty interesting. And Saudi Arabia, I also couldn't get in. Um, so uh, couldn't get into the country at all at that point. Um, but I arrived there on boat on the se second ship um, in Jeddah. Uh, and Bahrain, I was outright denied um, visas twice. So, uh, so, so, so it, the, the, the complexion, the contours of the project were defined by the denials. They were also defined by arriving by ship. They were also defined by all of these archival um, jaunts that I did, which was just as much um, fun and amazing as doing this kind of research. It's fascinating that you've arrived at this kind of point of study through the question of war. And I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on how this uh, this lens of circulation, this lens of infrastructure allows us to take another look at, at those connections between conflict and trade. I mean, um, I the, the main, one of the biggest arguments that I make in the book, and it's not a new argument, loads of people have made it, is the ways in which these infrastructures that are absolutely necessary to commerce are also fungible. They're fully fungible and can be at a moment put in the service of war making. We saw that in uh, the context of uh, multiple U.S. wars in the Middle East, um, 1990, again, uh, 2003. Um, but, but we also actually see it today with the Russia-Ukraine war, where, um, for example, we see that the way that war and trade have affected the shipment of oil, have affected the trade in grain, um, and, and have, and in many instances, um, sort of, the, the sh uh, of course, the transportation of these goods um, ends up becoming a subject both of sanctions and violence. And so uh, that, that fungibility between war and trade and of the infrastructure's function in both that dual use, in a sense, was what I was really interested in from the get-go. And it's what I've always been interested in, which because in a sense, it is impossible to, to not notice the way that when uh, commercial relations fail when sort of the processes of um, securing consent through these sets of economic relations fail. Coercion is always there to, to um, as, as a kind of a um, incentive for ensuring uh, the flow of capital, goods, and people. 
there's a sense of that there's always this kind of apocalyptic possibility, therefore, in the kind of uh, uh, templates and infrastructure of, of trade that are being laid down. And I, I'd love to turn to um, your article um, from a couple of years ago now, but like, ever more relevant um, on apocalyptic infrastructures. And so, first of all, I'd love for you to give us a sense of what you mean by infrastructure. Okay. So there are lots of different ways in which people define infrastructure. There are people that, for example, say people are infrastructure. And there's a very uh, well-known, quite critical, really lovely urban geographer who actually uses that people as infrastructure term. Um, I'm not comfortable using that for a variety of political and theoretical reasons, but I, you know, I, I see that there are different definitions that can be given. For me, infrastructure is on the one hand the thing that most um, clearly in vernacular people refer to: bridges, roads, ports, airports, uh, the concrete, uh, both physically, both literally and figuratively speaking, um, constructions and things that make uh, that facilitate life. Uh, facilitate commerce, facilitate work. But I also include um, other kinds of infrastructure which are not made out of concrete and which are not, you can't touch them, but they are incredibly important. So uh, legal infrastructures, um, uh, financial infrastructures, um, uh, data infrastructures, you name it. So all of engineering infrastructures or engineering regulations. And so these kinds of um, uh, regula regulatory bodies, there is sets of regulatory um, and standards, uh, standard sort of um, portfolios, which underlie the making and use of a lot of the concrete infrastructures I include as part of that. So for me, the uh, rules that enforce contract um, are important. For me, the audits and tax processes that um, ensure an intermingling of the, uh, the the government of the state and corporations is really important. Um, so that's the kinds of things that I'm interested in, and that's what I would call an infrastructure. I'm curious about your um, your documenting of how these sort of legal infrastructures can massively and have massively transformed our relationship to uh, the rest of the web of life, if you like, the sort of natural environment. You've uh, written that there's something usually uh, kind of damaging, usually sort of deleterious about often the ways in which these infrastructures are built. And I'm wondering if that's, in your view, a kind of necessary part of infrastructure, or is it just kind of a fact of the infrastructure that we happen to have? So there are uh, a couple of critical scholars, one of whom is an indigenous scholar, uh, First Nation scholar in the, in, in um, Canada, uh, uh, by the names of Deb Cowan and Winona LaDuc, Winona LaDuc being the indigenous um, scholar. And the two of them have written um, extensively, and, and, and in one in particular article about the way that infrastructures don't necessarily have to be carceral or violent or coercive or extractive, that we do need infrastructures. For example, schools are incredibly important infrastructures that we do need. Um, we do need hospitals. Um, you know, we do need uh, bridges to get from one place and other place. We even do need transportation of various sorts and transportation infrastructures. The, the question, though, is who gets to decide these infrastructures are built? Who benefits? Who pays for it? And on whom are the deleterious effects that you're talking about are visited? And of course, we know that in the latter case, it is often the, um, the racialized 
um, and uh, the the working class and the marginalized communities that this happens to. Let me just give you one particular example. Um, about two to three weeks ago, uh, there was a, a freight train derailment in eastern Ohio uh, in a place kind of sadly and ironically called East Palestine, uh, written like Palestine, uh, East Palestine, Ohio. And uh, this trail uh, train was carrying chemicals. And one of the uh, stupid things that the um, the trains uh, sort of company that this that was transporting these chemicals decided to do was to explode to to do a con supposedly controlled explosion of the materials that were on the train in order to prevent their spillage. The unfortunate prop uh, problem was that the material that was being carried was vinyl chloride, which is one of the most toxic things that you could potentially have, and the kinds of gases that are Produced through the explosions that happened in these places are some of the gases that somebody was telling me the other day. Um, he's a, he's, I was on a uh, radio panel with a professor of chemistry at UCL, and he was saying that some of the gases that were produced in this explosion are actually used as chemical weapons in war. And so this was an instance in which an, a is it necessary to carry plastics, material that make plastics from one location to another? One does wonder. Plastics are now such a huge percentage of what comes out of the production um, of petrochemicals, but they are also some of the most damaging environmental things that we, we could potentially produce. And then there's this train that is derailed um, and the decisions that are made around how to dispose of the pollution that it's producing is absolutely horrendous. The people that are living, there, there have been tens of thousands of fish and other kind of wildlife that have died around this East Palestine. Um, people who are living there and who are being encouraged to return are talking about feeling sick and nauseous. Their kids are throwing up. And, th and these folks want to return to their homes. How else are they going to be able to survive? And, you know, this is this uh, kind of, a, it, in, it's in America's Rust Belt, it's in the U.S. Rust Belt, which is already deindustrialized through a series of legislative um, and regulatory processes that have essentially been uh, intended as um, reducing the power of often a quite powerful um, sort of unions in that area, industrial trade unions in that area. And this is the outcome of that. This is also, of course, comes on in the wake of, again, another set of legislative and executive decisions, which was that um, when the train drivers were actually going on strike, were trying to strike in order to, to be able to secure better working conditions, including, for example, more people um, as sort of backup drivers on these incredibly long train rides, um, et cetera, uh, Biden intervened to scupper the, the uh, used executive power to scupper the strike. And we see the direct outcome of this executive decision, uh, you know, just just a few months later. And so to me, this is an instance in which an infrastructure that is part of the productive processes, in this instance of petrochemicals, which are already quite problematic in the first place, but we're seeing the failure of infrastructure resulting in all sorts of devastating processes. And the failure isn't just a physical failure. It's also a failure of legislation. It's a failure in this instance of um, collective action uh, being able to sort of garner uh, outcomes that would have been good not only for the train drive, but also for the community in East Palestine and all of those dead wildlife. 
Yeah, I'd love to talk more about that relationship between um, labour struggles and labour in general and sort of setting the terms for kind of what infrastructure is possible, what infrastructure is desirable, right? Because often we think of like futurity, the future, this shiny technological future as a kind of replacement of labour by infrastructure, a kind of complete erasure of labour from the kind of basic processes of life. But you write in your book, um, uh, Sinews of War and Trade, that continually we come across these problems where like no labor is is necessary because some of these things are just dangerous complex difficult and human intentionality is very important here i think you're absolutely right i mean automation has been well i mean marx was writing about the machine mm -hmm. uh God, almost 200 years ago and so in a way we are not um the same sets of debates constantly happen. Automation as a fantasy of displacing unruly workers has been something that has been functioning for a long time. It, it Automation also so, is supposed to, for example, um, even when it doesn't replace workers, it's supposed to discipline them. So uh, famous Taylorist um, cog in the machine uh, kind of breakdown of tasks that are partially automated by machines, but partially performed by human beings. But the jobs that are performed by human beings are incredibly reduced and narrowed and, and made mechanical in some senses, machine-like, in fact. So, so these two elements, the automation as a replacement for workers, but automation also as a, as a means of disciplining workers in their workplace, has been something that has been with us for a long time. And this fantasy that infrastructures would do this has been completely intertwined with this. But there are other ways in which um, labor is, um, the, the relationship between labor and infrastructure is quite significant. We know for example, that um, in many instances, the ways in which uh, workers have organized around production, um, the, the questions of health and safety, for example, that they have organized for, have been absolutely crucial, not only, as I said, into the working conditions of those workers themselves, but also to the, to the, to the proper functioning of um, um, of, of the infrastructures themselves within communities and that web of life that you mentioned. Uh, the most obvious example are the people who drive very big transport um, machines, uh, the, the ship's captains, the train uh, drivers, the pilots. Um, we know that when they tell us that it's not the kind of working conditions they have uh, are not safe, when, we know that when they tell us that we have to take um, heed because we know that when they tell us that these working conditions are unsafe. What they're talking about is not only their own working conditions, but also the ways in which a train can derail, as one just did, a freight train and a passenger train just derailed in Greece and dozens of people were killed. We know that when pilots are tired and they can't function, um, uh, they the ship, uh, or sorry, the, the uh, plane can go down. We know that, if the, of course, the uh, famous Boeing um, 737 Air Max, where the pilots constantly were telling Boeing that there was something wrong about the way it was functioning and Boeing wasn't paying attention. So the people that were operating the machine were not listened to in that instance. And in fact, interestingly, the, 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 the sort of machinery that uh, or the software that Boeing had put into those Air Max planes were, were those that were supposed to automate to some extent the function of the pilot. <laughs> and of course, they failed. 
because they they did not they were not trained. And of course, we know that if a ship, if a ship's captain uh, cannot function, or if the if the workers tell us that the working conditions aboard a ship are not safe, that could potentially also lead to leakages, to spillages, to um, to unsafe uh, working conditions, not only for the seafarers themselves, but also, for example, for the dock workers that come alongside. And so, but but this is I'm just talking about transport infrastructure. This also, of course, applies to everything else that you might think of. Off roads, um, bridges, hospitals. We do need to listen to the people who interact with daily, who construct, who work with, who use those infrastructures, because they are the ones who know this. Having said that, this uh, the, the relationship between workers and these infrastructures is not always, even between trade unions and these infrastructures, is not always salutary. We know, for example, that there are certain trade unions that will put let's say, jobs uh, aboard oil rigs ahead of environmental concerns. Mm. We know that there are trade unions that, for example, will uh, want to continue to produce, for example, arms for uh, because that because the arms trade is such a significant part of the GDPs of so many advanced nations, and there are trade unions in all of these countries that would very much love for those uh, for for the military industrial complex to to thrive. And so, so there has to also be a political reckoning with the ways in which we think about uh, the interaction between workers, uh, their unions, and these infrastructures. And thinking about, you know, how we kind of collectively imagine and sort of experience these infrastructures, I'm intrigued by the way in which your work documents a kind of invisibilization through kind of maritime infrastructure, through maritime processes. Um, what is necessary for like the fundaments of the of the world in which we live? I um, am taken with the sort of an anecdote whereby... Um, the undersea oil pipeline is a particularly attractive technology, partly because it can't be sabotaged by workers. And also this is very much bound up with, you know, how our cities have changed through containerization. So it's a really interesting question. There's a really interesting critical geographer called uh, an artist, uh, Trevor Paglin, who um, has a book called, I think, uh, Black Spots on the Map. And what he does in particular in that book is absolutely fascinating. What he does is he looks at things that are invisible and comes up with methodologies for us to access the invisible. So one of the one of the um, artistic productions he's done is, for example, taking divers and go diving down into the places where there are, for example, telecommunication pipelines and looking at the processes by which an institution like the NSA, for example, or Five Eyes, you know, the, the signal intelligence uh, collaboration between the white settler colonial states of you know, the, of Britain. Uh, and these, um, and he actually goes down there and he traces the way that NSA and all of these places tap those infrastructures. So it's a black spot on the map. This is, this is telecommunication pipelines. Absolutely now absolutely necessary to the web of life, to, to our communicating with one another, to us uh, talking to each other, to commerce, to life, to uh, to love. You, you need to talk to you know somebody over the phone if you love them. So, uh, But he talks about the way that this information is tapped through diving down there. Another thing he does is he actually uses astronomers to look at the sky and look at particular passages of moving objects across the, sp uh, the sky to trace uh, satellites uh, that are 
are uh, we de- spying satellites that we don't know about. And one of the other things that he does, and this goes back to the ways in which we think about budgets or regulations as infrastructure, is he goes through line item by line item through thousands of pages of U.S. annual budgets, U.S. government's annual budgets, and adds them up and finds out how much of the budget, which is classified and therefore not in the line item, through figuring out where the holes, where the black spots on the on the budget spreadsheets are. <laughs> and, and so that's how he figures out what the sort of the classified amounts of budget allocated to, say, a CIA or to uh, JSOC, uh, the, the special operations thing is. And so I think there is a particular way in which you can, you have to be creative with your methodology to find these kinds of things. Um, because, of course, as you mentioned, one of the things that has happened is that as uh, container ships, but also oil ships and other kinds of uh, freighters have become larger and larger, ports have moved further and further out of towns. We know that ports used to be right in the center of towns. We know that, for ex- we can see that in London, where you have various keys that used to be the East India Key and the West India Key. And these used to be the places where ships arrived and brought in goods. And they were right there. I mean, they're, East India Key is right next to the city. West India Key is just south of the river from the city. And so there's a, actually, it's not even south of the river, it's north of the river, but, and, you know, <laughs> I, I always get mixed up with the Isle of Dogs. Ignore that. It is further <laughs> along the river. Um, and uh, and what you find is that these used to be right in the center of town, but now, of course, the big ports are way out of town. Uh, so, uh, for example, London Gateway is all the way down the Thames estuary, and it's almost impossible for anybody to get to it. Um, and so, uh, kind of um, uh, worker mobilization, which mm. used to be such a significant part of dockers' um, activities, ends up being shipped off somewhere where it's invisible. So if they were to strike, for example, or to pick it, it would be really impossible to get there because it's you know it's all the way down there and it's surrounded by uh, warehouses and um, and tank farms and things like that, and so it's completely different kind of proposition for workers to be able to receive support uh, if they're striking or picketing, um, if if their workplace is all the way down there rather than right in the center of town. This kind of um, rolls back a little bit to uh, this framework of an apocalyptic infrastructure because, of course, in the ways in which um, the, the global distribution of, of trade and production has you know shifted over the last you know, 50, 100 years, come with... Um, a massive differentiation in in who and how is is exposed to these kinds of yeah. apocalypses, right? Which yeah. are often around racial and colonial lines, unsurprisingly. Yes, I mean uh, when I teach a, um, I have taught a class on infrastructure, and and in my very first lecture, I always do say, look at who pays for this, who benefits who suffers uh, and who gets to use it. So uh, we know that a lot of the infrastructures that are built are um, a a lot of really amazing scholars in the US, for example, have shown uh, that uh, the the, uh, dangerous infrastructures are often rooted through racialized communities. not even even non-dangerous infrastructures are rooted through uh, racialized communities. Roads in the 1960s were built right down the middle of thriving African-American neighborhoods. Pipelines today are built, um, uh, or there was an attempt to build them in uh, North Dakota through uh, indigenous um, American uh, cities and towns and neighborhoods. In the UK itself, when the first round of Black Lives Matter protests were 
were going on in the in 2014. One of the things that they actually organized around, the, the activists organized around, was the fact that the city airport, for example, is in uh, is is in a council that is one of the poorest um, in London, Newham Council, and that the city airport produces this incredible pollution, which is right there, smacked up and affecting those folks. So the the placement of these infrastructures is often uh, it often benefits uh, those who have invested in it or are going to be profiting from it because often they're placed in places that are less expensive. The places that are less expensive are often racialized or working class. And so that, that kind of a uneven distribution of benefits and costs to different populations, which are, as I said, often racialized and or poor and or working class, is, is what is quite shocking about this. I'm wondering what you think about uh, how this affects how we kind of imagine, how we conceive of what is apocalyptic, like what is an apocalypse, right? Because that seems to be very kind of effectively invisibilized in in many senses. I'm thinking here about Naomi Klein's concept of lunar forming, which is the opposite of terraforming. It's quite useful. And then you look at, for instance, the Niger Delta, massive site of um, natural gas extraction, formerly thriving, very important ecologically, very important to, of course, the people who live in the area, now literally on fire. Yeah. Um, there's a novel I want to recommend to your readers I read recently. It's a kind of a detective novel taking, uh, written by a Nigerian, Helen Habila, and it's called Oil on Water. And it's a really wonderful book, uh, which gives a sense of that, the way that oil um, interacts with uh, everyday life in, in, in the Niger, uh, Nigerian Delta, uh, the, the River Delta. And, uh, and, um, and this apocalypse can happen in two different ways. It can happen immediately, obviously, when you have uh, spillages oil spillages. Uh, it's an immediate, it's a visible effect. It could be on fire, it could destroy people. Uh, it, the, 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 this political mobilization that Ken Sarawiva, the playwright, the Nigerian playwright, was involved in around these issues, uh, Shell's exploitation um, of the areas in um, the Delta, uh, was around this uh, visible uh, and urgent sense of spillage. But there's also a slow apocalypse going on. And of course, that's climate change. It's not quite as visible unless you're living in an area which is subjected to it. And the ways in which we are subjected to the effects of climate change is hugely uneven. We're seeing uh, drought um, and destruction in parts of the world uh, which can't afford drought and destruction. And so you have uh, the devastation of the natural environments in lots of places that happens very slowly in over years, desertification, uh, deforestation um, in, in pl places which are the lungs of the earth, Indonesia or um, Brazil, and, and the communities that are living there are affected by it. They see the urgent and immediate effects of this. But the rest of us are also subjected to this slow apocalypse, um, environmental apocalypse, because of course, as I said, the lungs of the earth are being cut down. There's been a lot kind of written and examined about the kind of relationship between forms of um, like fossil fuel extraction and forms of democracy or obviously lack thereof. Um, I'd, I'd love to know a, a bit more about particularly the kind of oil extraction and the kind of political horizons it's given us. And, and also, I guess, more generally, like, is there a sort of set of political and social relations sort of necessarily laid down by kinds of infrastructure or, or do we have, a, I guess, a bit more flexibility there? Uh, the, uh, the argument obviously appears in Tim Mitchell's Carbon Democracy. Mm -hmm. He essentially says that the British Empire... Uh, 
expanded on the back of uh, coal another fossil fuel, mm. and the American empire expanded on the back of oil. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting and, and I think, you know, fairly persuasive with some, some kind of qualifications at the edges, because obviously BP and Shell, British oil companies, they, you know, uh, continue to thrive. But I think that there is a particular set of uh, politics that emerges, both uh, domestically and globally, out of these um, uh, forms of fossil fuel, which uh, I think really need to be reckoned with. Um, the argument that Tim Mitchell makes about coal is that coal was uh, an extremely labor-intensive uh, material to extract. And the labor intensivity gave the workers who worked down the mines a leverage that they used not only to improve their working, their workplace conditions, but also uh, in, in political participation. And so that's why carbon democracy, the kind of a mass uh, voting, mass political participation that emerged uh, in early uh, 20th century in Britain was sort of in some senses or late 19th, early 20th century, was really courtesy of these sort of mass labor activities taking place by workers down the mines. Mm. And one of the things that Mitchell argues is that oil in some ways put pay to that because number one, uh, the British went looking for oil elsewhere. So the, the workers um, that worked the oil fields now were in other places. They weren't in Britain, so they didn't have to, they couldn't be unruly. But also importantly, this sort of underwrote and encouraged uh, colonization in other places as well, because obviously oil was, is, at the time, they didn't know oil wasn't produced anywhere in Britain, of course. Now we know that the North Sea is um, a major source of oil. So I think that in some ways, this obviously um, affects the way the political relations, both internally, domestically. We see it in the erosion of the rights of uh, mine workers, uh, miners, um, and, and the erosion also of uh, the kind of mass democracy that emerges out of union organizations, militant union organization. We see the gradual decline of that through the 20th century in Britain. But we also see the emergence of oil economies elsewhere, which of course, until you know, between 1909, where uh, when the British went into Iran and 1980s, where uh, the last of Middle Eastern oil was nationalized. In that, in that 80 year span, uh, the beneficiaries of the income from oil that was coming out of the Middle East's ground were primarily the industrialized nations of uh, the Atlantic plus Japan. Um, and I think that that recognition has to be taken into account when we're thinking about climate change, because the cumulative effect of that carbon usage over the course of those 80 years is what has put us in the place that we are. We now see for example, that the U.S., uh, people who live in the U.S. use six times per person than an average European in the, or produce six times their carbon footprint is six times as big as an average European. And I think something like 50 times as big as someone in uh, one of the countries uh, of Africa that does not produce oil. I, other, uh, let's say, Central African countries. So I think that this, this has to be taken account of because the fact that the benefits accrued over the course of those 80 years to the countries of the Atlantic and to the industrial nations, um, the oil that was pumped out of the ground in Saudi Arabia and Iran paid for various US wars um, in Korea and Vietnam. It paid for the reconstruction of uh, Europe after the Second World War. It paid for the US's um, global 
glorious industrial age post uh, the Second World War, which was also that one moment, uh, the sort of 25 years or so after the uh, Second World War, where uh, rights in the US improved, where you actually had a proper welfare system. And, and I think oil underwrote all of those. But again, the benefits were completely unevenly distributed. Um, so the benefits ended up accruing to the global north and the costs uh, were accrued to the global south, not only to the countries which had to give up the oil over which they sat, but also all the rest of us who suffer from the effects of climate change that comes out of the sort of un, uh, the unregulated massive consumption of oil in the global north. I think this is where your um, framing of this, this deep imbrication of literal infrastructure, right, physical stuff in the world, and um, legal and bureaucratic infrastructure, because what's necessary is to sort of dislocate sites of extraction from processes of democracy, right? We're seeing this very, you know, all the time, TTIP, uh, trade agreements, all this sort of thing. And sites of sovereignty. I mean, one of the things that one finds, uh, the, the, the legal cases that emerge around oil in the 1940s and 50s, actually from 1917 onwards, 1917, uh, 1919 were significant because Soviet Union nationalized the uh, oil in Azerbaijan. Uh, and then 1938 is significant because Mexico nationalized Mexican oil. And then you, you see over that the course of that period, and then of course after the discovery of oil in the Middle East, a series of legal cases are, that that emerge that actually try to shift sovereignty from the oil producers to the corporations that produce them. There are multiple cases in which um, arbitration, international arbitration courts that were in uh, London or in Switzerland that are ruling for the oil companies. There's one particular case, especially of Aramco, which at that point was owned by Standard Oil of California, which is today Chevron. Um, Aramco, which at that point was a Western corporation, a U.S. corporation, um, actually is told by an arbitration by a judge that it has sovereignty over the bits of Saudi Arabia where oil, where it produces uh, oil, and that it's and that and that its concession agreement, which was signed in 1933, has and and this is a direct quote, has the full force of national law in Saudi Arabia. So we see that the law emanating from the North Atlantic, and it continues to emanate from the North Atlantic, uh, dictates who has sovereign power. And as you mentioned, when it comes to these massive trade agreements, also dislocates them to this kind of an abstract sphere to which the, the voters do not have direct access because everything is uh, negotiated in bureaucratic settings and insulated with uh, miles and miles of legal and commercial jargon, which makes it inaccessible to, to, to a public to understand. And I think one of the biggest projects that I uh, see actually emerging among younger activists of your generation, but which I think I'm committed to for the rest of my academic life, is actually to unpick this jargon, to, to uh, make clear how things work. Because I think one of the successes um, of capitalism in the late uh, 20th century and uh, 21st century has been this obfuscation that happens through specialized and incredibly obscure language. And I think that 
figuring out how it all works and in what ways it functions along with everything else, along with tax codes and engineering standards and health and safety discourses is, is really a huge task of, of public and political education. There's a sort of similarity there between the ways in which uh, technology and sort of physical infrastructure is sold to us as a kind of resolution of uh, social tensions and of the various problems that plague us in our everyday life, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and selling us a kind of bureaucratic infrastructure as sort of doing the same thing. Like, don't worry about the work of politics, about you know having a say over your own life will take care of that for you somewhere off in an international settlement dispute court and will sort of present you with the most market efficient option. Everything will be fine. But of course, when you look at how that actually functions, it's like, you know, oh God, this is maybe a 10 year old example now, but I think the Canadian government tried to bring in some legislation that banned a certain kind of chemical because it was, uh, it was a neurotoxin. And then they were sued because that would infringe a right to profit that was enshrined in an international trade agreement whose name escapes me right yeah. at this moment. No, I think that that's absolutely right. There is a displacement of agency from us as citizens, as 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 um, nationals, as political uh, actors. There's a displacement of our agency on the one hand onto these name sort of a faceless uh, bureaucratic uh, transnational uh, kinds of treaties and bodies, and on the other hand. And, and this is something that a, a lot of us academics are now um, grappling with, uh, to uh, faceless uh, technology. Uh, chat GPT, which has been all over social media <laughs> and which um, universities are freaking out about, essentially is saying education is unnecessary because you can because you can displace or outsource your essay writing to this thing to this machine and it doesn't matter that chat gpt doesn't actually write a good essay it doesn't mind it doesn't matter that it makes up sources and bibliography it doesn't matter that it does not understand what it's doing but you know you can dis, you know you can sort of outsource your education to that and of course what we're trying to do what we're trying to say uh, what I'm trying to say is that education is not about the essay writing I think that we have become so dependent on I can't believe that we're, we've moved all the way from infrastructure to marking <laughs> essays but I don't think that we should be dependent on on uh, the, the the kind of software driven uh, quantifiable test-driven system of education, which puts supposedly puts machines to our service, but which eventually and essentially takes over the task both of teaching and of learning. And this happens in every instance. And it has quite um, troubling sides as well, because of course a lot of the tech bros that are trying to sell uh, us these uh, technology solutions, we're discovering more and more are also eugenicists who believe in kind of ubermensch uh, that are uh, that that you know that can go and conquer Mars yeah, or yeah. that can go off you know to other parts <laughs> the of the Uber world. But the Uber and ubermensch, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I think sure. That's, that's why it's sort of I'm I'm curious as to what the sort of democratic governance systems are that you think are necessary to deal with um, 
these sort of infrastructural problems that we're facing and also to sort of lay down the tracks, as it were, for the kinds of infrastructures that will be necessary to combat, I mean, obviously climate change is the big one, but of course there's many other social problems that we're, that we're facing because it's, it's a curious problem because we've been talking about um, kind of international governance as, as a form of, of, of kind of anti-democracy, but at the some, in some ways like our fate is planetary, right? So, you know, how can we have that planetary uh, de democratic say over our collective fate? I mean, I... It's I a think mind-boggling problem. It is ways. a mind-boggling problem. So I think that, that uh, this can be confronted in multiple ways. One of the one of the triumphs of capitalism has been to grant corporations legal personhood. Just this morning, I was reading Robert McFarland, the fabulous naturalist, who uh, writes about um, the nature in this country, talking about. He he just posted a tweet in which he talked about how the uh, Lewis in in uh, Sussex is giving legal personhood to the River Ouse. I was like, woohoo, this is actually great. Because uh, this is one way of fighting the fight, right? Within the system, if we're going to be, we're going to have to fight at every level and with every single weapon given to us. So if we're going to fight legally within the system, let's give legal personhood to land. Let's give legal personhood to the seas. Let's give legal personhood to, to the sky. That way, at least perhaps we could put the rights of our rivers against the rights of Thames water to dump, you know, uh, sewage into our rivers. And so that is one way you could do it. The other way is, of course, I think mass mobilization. And I think the more disruptive, the better, because I think that forms of disruption, although extremely inconvenient, precisely because of their inconvenience, tend to generate some form of response. There's going to be a response to mass uh, disruption and, and civil disobedience. But I also think that there needs to be ways of organizing transnationally. Um, and, and that has to... Uh, I take account of the fact that traditionally transnational organization has been very much marred by racialized uh, hierarchies of power emanating out of colonial sets of relations, even, for example, between trade unions or within trade, global trade unions, even when it is about labor, labor organizations or labor solidarity. And I think that we need to look at how to find ways of organizing together that will allow for us to overcome those traditional colonial sets of solidarity, uh, sets of um, selfish, non-altruistic, non-solidarity <laughs> behaviors that divided them, divided us. And I think, again, we see this, we see some of that happening, for example, with dockers in Genova or in Liguria uh, or in South Africa or in Oakland, um, refusing to unload Israeli ships, uh, refusing to unload Saudi ships, you know, the, to forms of solidarity which combines workplace leverage with political transnational mobilization. So I think that this is a this is going to have to be a battle, a struggle on many, many fronts. And there, you know, and we all need to be involved in it in whatever, wherever we are. This uh, place of disruption in the kind of like political imaginary, particularly of people who are in Paris, it's such a has such a funny place, right? Because on the one hand, you have your uh, your Silicon Valley heads, and also your sort of 
Dominic Cummingses who sort of want to be a Silicon Valley head, um, lionizing disruption, right? Let's, you know, move fast and break things, right? But on the other hand, you have a lot of, you know, policing currently being strengthened around the idea that like disruption is impossible, which kind of implies that this is this is about ownership, right? And the, the creative destruction is also a form of, it's also a form of capture of resources, right? If you invent a new technology that's, uh, you know, a, a really fast bus, say, and now you own all the buses, great. You own that infrastructure. I mean, capitalism has historically had an unbelievable ability to to absorb and co-opt a lot of quite radical um, positioning and radical positions. Um, Eve Chapello and uh, Luke Boltanski have written a book, The New Spirit of Capitalism, which talks about how after the 1968 revolution in uh, student and worker revolution in France, uh, French capitalists started using the sort of the language of disruption and entrepreneurialism and sort of radicalism that that the students and workers had used in 1968. We see the language of anti-racism being taken up by Nike, for example, <laughs> the, the shoe producers. Um, you, you know, the the, the sort of the, um, the, the, the it, capitalism has an unbelievable ability to absorb and co-opt these discourses. And so it's unsurprising that the tech bros love the language of disruptions and disruptors and things like that, which is actually also a terrible neologism. <laughs> um, I think that I, I think the kind of disruption I'm talking about is uh, social disruption. I mm. think it's civil disobedience. It, it is to it is to stop the everyday working of things, including of the uh, repressive apparatuses, which are so significant. Um, uh, and, and becoming even more uh, entrenched uh, in, in stopping protests, for example, the, the laws that are passed in, in forcing migrants um, away from uh, city centers and, and, uh, and the country itself. Uh, so so it, I, I am talking about different kinds of disruption. Mm. I also think that this is where to bring things back around to um, infrastructures, um, workers who do have control over infrastructures could be very good at that form of civil disobedience and disruption put to use for political reasons. And I think that that is something that we need to start thinking about because simply doing protests out on the streets um, is it's it's an incredibly important thing, but it also needs to be combined with all sorts of other tactics. Um, and we need to come up with creative ways of doing that. And I think that that's really important. It strikes me that some of the the most feared, the most kind of uh, bogeymanned forms of kind of uh, disruption of like social and civil disobedience that are currently taking place, at least you know in this the metropole where we're currently recording, are very much they they're in the um, sectors of of infrastructure, right? Yeah. Including the you know the infrastructure of education, but then of course rail workers, and of course you have um, climate anti climate change protesters gluing themselves to roads, like locking the doors, or locking themselves onto the, the doors of, say, you know, coal factories and whatnot. And like, th there is something about like, okay, we know that the union's uh, density and union strength in this country has been decimated by Thatcherism and also by the global reorganization of labor. But one site of, of you know very live power is of course the, the zone exactly. of circulation. Yeah, so it's interesting also because I think part of the uh, wave of strikes that we're seeing is also an outcome of COVID. Mm. Because when COVID happened, the very people who are striking today were the ones who were 
clapped and you know that kind of empty gesture mm-hmm. um as as having you know kept us going the nurses the doctors the teachers uh who you know uh, us even who had to rejig the ways in which we did our work um almost overnight in order to ensure that our students education continued um the train drivers continued to work the bus drivers continued to work and in fact there was a uh, there was a moment during which the number one occupation of people that succumbed to COVID were actually bus drivers in in this in in this country. Mm-hmm. So, on so on the one hand, these people are told that they are uh, perhaps not us, but certainly the teachers and the nurses and the delivery drivers and the drivers and the train um, uh, staff are told that they are. Um, unbelievably important that they are the ones that um, are considered to be uh, essentially impossible to let go of. They can't be furloughed. They can't sit at home. They have to continue working through a pandemic when we didn't even know how this thing was spread. And then come the end of the pandemic, what we hear about is a an entrenchment and widening of inequality that the billionaires became even richer, that uh, cronies of uh, the government got multi-million dollar, uh, completely corrupt uh, contracts, which they didn't deliver on. And then we're hearing that it's too much to give a raise to our nurses. And so I think that that combination of, on the one hand, being told that you're a necessary cog in the machine, you need to function no matter what, but on the other hand, being told, well, even though you're a necessary cog in the machine, we're not going to pay you, is probably um, a quite a significant element of that. So these incredibly important infrastructural workers, and this is where I'm talking about teachers as well, who are on strike today, I think is, uh, is really a direct response to that. I'm curious about um, the the role of of infrastructure in that kind of uh, I guess a sort of left wing national imaginary, right? We saw this a lot through Corbynism, you know, hit the big red nationalize button, right? Which, you know, I I'm behind. Great, we should like absolutely, but um, because of you know we are like a colonial metropole and like have to reckon with the fact that you know these infrastructures are not neutral because they're na- uh, because they're national right talking of trains like the classic canard is uh, in india britain built the ra- railways which is of course you know for what to what end my yeah. friend um so I, I guess how do we sort of rejig the way in which we sort of we approach what um our, like what we demand infrastructurally like like I guess as a as a national left. So if we are talking about um, democratization of infrastructures, mm-hmm. I think one particular way, obviously, is for those uh, national infrastructures, things like the train, uh, to be uh, to continue to you know to be controlled by the state, because at least that way you have some democratic say about how these things operate. Um, that said, you're absolutely right. Our entire welfare system, the, the wealth of this country is built on the back of colonial exploitation that is historical. And so I think that there has to also be uh, ways of thinking about reparations, which are, which allow for, um, a recognition of the, the, 
the, the ways in which people from the former colonies have had and continue to have uh, an enormous um, sort of have made enormous contributions to the infrastructures. Let's talk about the NHS, mm. the, the biggest employer uh, in this country. I think it's probably the single biggest employer of any place other than either the military in China or the military in the US. I can't remember. Wow. So it is one of the biggest employers in the world. And a huge number of its employees come from former U.S. colonies or current Commonwealth uh, countries in uh, the Caribbean. And these folks are the folks on the back of whom NHS became the success that it did in the 1950s and 60s. And to acknowledge this is also to acknowledge the way that the system that they built, the sort of the 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 dead labor that has congealed into the NHS is now being privatized. And so in a way, this is not only about a national politics, it's also about the international. There has to also be a recognition that their labor into this has to be responded to with a with with far more respect and and uh and, and, and a financial compensation than the Windrush uh, scandal uh, has hmm. ever allowed. And certainly forms of reparation that would allow for some of the wealth that has accrued here because of the fact that the workers in this country are healthier because of the NHS to be repatriated to some of the places where the nurses and the doctors came from. Is that perhaps a, a way in which we can think about um, reparations? That's sort of... A, 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 transfer of ownership or maybe a sort of confirmation of, of ownership of these kinds of like fundamental infrastructures. I'm particularly thinking of, I guess, the resource extractions are becoming yeah. increasingly important in green transitions of like cobalt, minerals that are important for like technological manufacturing. I think that there's, this is a huge um, issue. Uh, and, and there's, there, there is, there needs to be a lot more democratic conversation, both at home and abroad, in all of these places where there is this uh, extraction going on of, you know, as you, you mentioned, lithium, cobalt, and other kinds of things that are going into batteries now, which we're all touting as the green sort of replacement to hydrocarbons. Um, the, uh, Thea Rio Francos in the US works on the question of uh, lithium extraction, in particular from Latin America. Mm. And some of the things that she points to is indigenous forms of organ organizing um, around the usage and extraction of lithium, which are far more democratic in uh, Bolivia and other places where which she has studied, and, and that we need to pay attention to ways of use that um, that will allow for both the, uh, the, the democratic demands of the people who are actually involved in the extraction of this stuff um, in Bolivia are met, but also that its use are regulated in ways that benefits all of us. So one of the things that she points to, for example, is if we're going to be extracting lithium and cobalt and whatnot, why don't we not, instead of putting them in private individual cars, why don't we use them for public transport? Mm. And then that is that becomes something that we can struggle for. So our struggle for public transport here, rather than building more car factories or roads or whatever, ends up becoming also a struggle for the rights of indigenous people in Bolivia to have control over their natural 
resources. Mm. And it, it kind of troubles the idea of, um, you know, what is that kind of national level of politics? Because, you know, when a Latin American country nationalizes a natural resource, you can kind of set your timers and count down to like Washington Post op-eds being like, oh, do we think this is a dictator? Maybe we should invade? Yeah, well, and, and Elon Musk famously saying oh, yeah. we can do a coup when we want to. Yeah, we I can mean, coup them when we want to. So uh, horrendous, yeah. not only on political, but also grammatical level. <laughs> I mean, that's the real villainy here. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, he's saying the quiet part loud, isn't he? Yeah. That's, uh, you know, that's why a lot of people got angry at him. So I'm like, yeah, you're not, but you're not supposed to say it, are you? Yeah. Um, no, he's really good about that. He's actually, he has such supreme, the supreme confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> he, you know, he can say things because he just thinks he can get away with it. So what, I guess, uh, do we do with this sort of, I guess, the issue of the potential, I guess, destructive possibilities or certainly disruptive in you know some senses possibilities that a green transition will make on an infrastructural level? I mean, the, the obvious example here is, say, a hydroelectric dam. Often you get it sort of flooding out communities who yeah. have maybe not had so much of a say in it. Yeah, I think that this is where the question of democratic control over infrastructures comes into it. I mean, democratic uh, control over infrastructures is in, is in itself not a panacea, because obviously a democratic control would, might mean that the nation votes for that hydroelectric dam, and then the people who are actually subjected to it are the ones that are racialized or marginalized right. or whatever. I yeah. mean, we see that, we see examples of that, for example, in India, where the Narmada Dam, um, which uh, Anandati Roy, fought against uh, displaced Adivasi peoples mm. or um, we, we find that to be the case also for example the, the major Aswan Dam which was seen as an anti-colonial sort of weapon of struggle against the British by Nasser but which displaced Nubians um, Nubian Egyptians and so there is there's democracy is not a panacea to this, but I do think that at least it's a first step. And that kind of democracy involves not only us, but also our comrades, our friends, um, other people elsewhere to also have a say in what we're doing. Because I think that what we do in the global north, because of the historical weight of the power that we have, uh, will end up having echoes that um, uh, are felt elsewhere. Not only historical, but also because we still control the laws. We still control the construction standards, mm. the accounting standards. We still control the flows of capital. The rules for these kinds of things are still set in the North Atlantic. And so it is very, it's incumbent on those of us who are citizens of these North Atlantic countries to engage in whatever whatever way we can. Disruption um, of um, civil disobedience, um, of engagement in politics, of um organizing around our rivers, becoming legal persons, you name it. So what do you think of that problem, that sort of face-off between growth and degrowth? Because often sort of infrastructural projects are touted as this kind of great Keynesian methodology to you know, inject some uh, some energy <laughs> into uh, into an economy and it's sort of counterposed by this, you know, sort of an asset-stripping uh angle on, you know, what you do with a sort of deindustrialized, you know, North Atlantic economy. But I guess in that we're sort of assuming that 
growth is the ultimate it's the ultimate goal I think here. we need I I do think that the debate on this needs to be taken much more seriously I think there are a lot of people on the left who take degrowth and make a caricature or a straw man out of it and 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 then knock it down and and I think that we need to think about the degrowth arguments much more substantively and clearly we do need to think about the ways in which uh Accounting for growth um, in particular ways does not account for environmental destruction. Accounting for growth, the ways in which we count growth, for example, does not account for the disruptions to the lives of the folks that are affected by these infrastructures. It does not account for uh, the the constantly uh, eroding quality of life for the vast majority of people while the wealth of a very teeny, tiny uh, percentage of people increases. So I think we need to um, think Think about growth completely and totally, or degrowth, in completely and totally in tandem with questions of equality and inequality. Otherwise, it's all entirely meaningless. So what are you working on now? Like, what's next? Um, a couple of things. Uh, one, that I have to apply for funding because it requires quite a bit of research in the field mm. about oil and the way that the subsequent national, that, that following the nationalization of oil, um, a whole series of processes have emerged which actually re-entrenched the power of the co- countries that benefited from oil in that 80-year period that I was talking about earlier. Um, and these are financial, these are um, uh, political, these are legal, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And then the second project, which I'm really hoping to do, is to do a history of logistics and transport, but from the global south. So not about the trains that came up, you know, in the 18th century in Britain, but really about uh, thinking about the role of colonialism and creating networks of transportation um, and logistics, starting with colonialism and slavery both of which sound completely fascinating. Hopefully we'll be able to talk to you about that down the line. But that, sadly, is probably where we'll have to leave it. Uh, It's been fun. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, I'm your host, Elna Penny. This has been Navara FM. Thank you so much for listening. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarramedia.com forward slash support.